This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Have you ever, I don't know if you, have you Googled yourself, Penny? No. Because when you Google you, the funniest, like it all comes up Penny Orman Payne wife, Penny Orman Payne partner. Like I feel like people just assume you're gay because you've got short hair. Oh, look, I think they probably do. Um, and to be honest, it was a bit, I think it was like doing an, a real-life experiment when I had a bet with Darren that I couldn't grow my hair and I grew it down to here and I can yeah. honestly say people treated me differently. They would. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yes, I was like we should probably address the, the elephant in the room, which is you've got kind of like a sunburnt face. <laughs> Is it you, really you had, bad sunburn? Yeah, but it's it's to address the effects of sunburn, which I guess is the irony. Um, what is that? You had topical chemo. Is that I is did. that what it is? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So basically, you get this cream. It's chemotherapy in a tube, and you put it on twice a day. Oh, just yourself. Um, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, which I. And with the benefit of hindsight, I feel like it's a pretty extreme thing to let people go home yeah. and do it by themselves. But anyway, yeah, so you put it on twice a day. Uh, nothing happens in the first week and then the second week your sort of skin starts breaking out wherever there is cancer or precancerous Whoa. cells. So supposedly um, if you don't have any damage, you don't. not much happens. happens. Um, I had damage everywhere. Um, yeah. And so, but it's a really, it's not a fun process. So it, it starts to get, oh, it burns and it gets yeah. itchy and it's hard to sleep. Um, and right towards the end, it's sort of, yeah, it's really tough. Um, and then I just had a really severe reaction at the end, which isn't usual. Um, and got burns to all of my face and ended up in hospital Had a quick visit in an yeah. ambulance to the hospital. Wow. Um, yeah, so this is four weeks post um, stopping the treatment. Okay. And most people look pretty normal by now. Yeah, um, okay. But I've probably got another month or two to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so do you just have to, like, do you just have to put aloe on it basically? And Oh, aloe vera didn't work at all for work. me. I've actually had to have steroid cream on oh, and so okay. I've literally just changed in the last 24 hours to a lower dose steroid, yeah. um, hence why it's looking a bit redder, but it's it's like the lotto. Um, I can wake up and it looks like this. I can wake up and it looks even better. Or I can wake up and I look like a tomato. So I'm really actually quite pleased that I don't look like a tomato today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems rough, but I guess like you made the calculation that, you know, this is something that you wanted to do because you had a high risk of, of um, skin cancer. Is that right? Yeah. My mum's had a melanoma. My grandparents have had a melanoma. Um, I had a BCC, so a basal cell carcinoma, frozen off my mm. nose um, during the federal election campaign, actually. Um, luckily, oh, there was yeah. a little lull in the campaign yeah. and I had to go and have that done um, and luckily it healed pretty quickly. But, yeah, when you're faced with the prospect of potentially having to have things frozen off yeah. or cut out of, and clearly it was a good decision because the amount of damage that was there. Yeah, I guess um, that, ironically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, the upside of the extreme reaction is they said I've probably nuked all of it. So. Okay, well, um, good. <laughs> and, I mean, it's a good, like, I guess some upside to it. It's a very visual reminder, but it's a good reminder for people to wear a hat and sunscreen, especially when you live in Australia, especially when you live in sunny Queensland. Yeah, I've actually had 
lots of conversations with people about that that's been stimulated by this. Um, so, yeah, I think that's yeah. a really good thing. I was talking actually, I think just yesterday, someone floated the idea of a greens policy for like free sunscreen, which I'm like, yes, free sunscreen everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. That I think be it's such a great idea. Parks, at pools, you know. Would save money too, right? When you look at the costs to the health system of dealing yeah. with skin cancer, I think it's two in three of us are going to get one um, mm. if we don't look after our skin. And I think the other learning for me was sunscreen's not enough. Um, mm. A lot of us think if we whack on our 50 plus, then we'll be fine. But actually, it's sunscreen and a hat. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. you need to Very keep yourself in shape. Very teacherly, I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like Chat GPT standing up here. We're stuck with a host of Chapo Shithouse podcasts. So, yes, hello everyone. By the way, this is Serious Danger. I'm Emerald Moon. It's a, this is a podcast about green politics in Australia. Um, and you may have noticed we don't have Tom here. He would normally tell you that this is not an official Greens Party podcast. That's still true. Still not an official Greens Party podcast. Still made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin. But this week, instead of Tom, who's still living it up um, overseas, I'm joined by a special co-host and return guest, Penny Orman Payne. We're going to be talking about school funding and Queensland Labor's cooked move to suspend the Human Rights Act so that they can lock up more children in watch houses and potentially adult prisons. So, Penny, you've been on the show before, but it was before you were elected. So now you have a slightly different title. You're still, you know, you're a former teacher, unionist, uh, but you're the Queensland Greens' newest senator and our first regionally based MP, and you have the portfolios of industry, transition, regional development, northern Australia, and schools. Did I miss any? No, but it's a mouthful, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome. And welcome as an MP. It's cool to have like have had you on, and then we were like, oh, we need to send all the stuff to your new address, your e- new email address, because you fucking went and got elected, didn't you? I know. I know. It's it's actually, it's been, been a bit of a spin out, and it's it's a real privilege and I've had a lot of fun over the first year, but we're also talking about some really serious issues uh, that we need some action on. Of course, schools is something we're going to talk about later in the show. But can yeah. I just share an anecdote with you? Um, <laughs> because I've known you for a while now, but yeah. I distinctly was thinking about it this morning and I actually remember the very first time that I was introduced to the fact that you existed in the world and it was when <laughs> I was sitting in Michael Berkman's office Um with KK going through resumes for people um, who we were looking to employ in his office. And I distinctly remember coming across yours and turning to KK well. and saying, who the fuck calls that kid Emerald Lane? <laughs> <laughs> My mum listens to this, you know. So. Um, that is so funny. Well, and what's the go, Penny? Because I didn't get an interview. <laughs> well, I, not resp- I wasn't responsible for all the hires. Oh, I think I was yeah, responsible yeah. for one. Um, but yeah, how, how wrong were we to not employ you from the get go? So, you know, I had to keep knocking on the door basically in the years that followed being like, let me in. Um, I mean, yeah, I probably wouldn't have hired me either. I think I had no experience. I would have still been in uni, but, uh, you should have known from the name, surely. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's such a teacher thing to do too, because we see some interesting ones. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got some teacher friends who've. So there are some fucking funny names out there and I'm one to talk. Um, yeah. 
Quickly, before we get into the show, I did just want to shout out our new patrons, um, Beatrice, Natalie, Sibhari Bradel, whose name also includes Up the NT Greens, Ben Corcoran, Ben Ames, and Valeria. And I have to give a shout out. So I had a pretty shitty week at work and then I was exhausted on the bus coming home last night. And this guy in front of me got up to, to get off at the same stop as me. And he was like, are you Emerald? I'm a Serious Danger subscriber. And he oh, was that's a, so good. A, a patron, um, a patron who we hadn't apparently shouted out because he joined with too many other people. So I have to give Brant a shout out. Thank you, Brant. That actually put a little bit of a, a nice um, end to my shitty day. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. That is very cool. Yeah. We've got a new a Patreon episode that's just come out about the politics of Taylor Swift. Uh, it is absolutely worth the $3 a month. I mean, we've had a few people, I think, specifically join to listen to this episode, and I would recommend that you do that. But there are also people, someone on Instagram said they'd be more likely to pay money to not hear about Taylor Swift, uh, which, to which I would say that's fine. Uh, if you don't like Taylor Swift, there are a whole bunch of other interviews uh, on the Patreon. People like Lee Rhiannon, Will Anderson and Tom Tanaki. We do cool deep dives into stuff like vaping. So, yeah, it's well worth if you if you're not already a patron, please consider chucking us three bucks a month. Mm. It helps us keep the show running and pay Mike. I have just become a convert to Taylor Swift, I have to oh, say. Oh, really? What's, yep, your, what's um, your favorite album? Like what what kind of? <laughs> well, um, is it Midnight's Till 3 a.m.? Yep. Midnight's actually, is the album, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. that actually got me through um, my face soaks. I My daughter loves Taylor Swift and she sends me um, albums to listen to and, yeah, that was one of them and it's turned into a favourite. So there you go. Who She's knew? a lifesaver. This is what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My daughter is now my official curator of my music list. <laughs> I love that. So you, okay, so as we mentioned, you're our first, you know, Queensland Greens' first MP mm. senator outside of the southeast corner and we talked a little bit, I think, last time we had you on the show about the fact that you are based in central Queensland. Um, you're actually only just, as I understand it, you're about to move into your new office in Gladstone soon, right? Yep, I literally went in to take a sneak peek yesterday. It was so very exciting. exciting. Yeah. Do you think like, I mean, has it obviously you still, you've been working in, in Gladstone. Like, do you think that we're having, it's having an impact to have a Greens rep in regional Queensland um, where we, we normally just have our presence, you know, in the city and in the southeast corner, particularly in Queensland? Yeah, I do. Although interestingly, I think because we haven't had a physical office presence in Gladstone mm. itself, it's actually had more of an impact outside to this point. Right, yeah. So, okay. for example, when I um, went and toured um, to talk about my National Energy Transition Authority Bill mm. and I went to La Trobe and the Hunter, sitting around the table talking to a community including um, members of unions about the need to transition, it's much easier to have that conversation when the opening sentence is, I understand yeah. what this means for you because I live in a community that is going to be impacted by moving away from coal and gas. Yeah. Um, and I think that gives you a level of um, authenticity and trust in in starting those conversations. So I think that's been really useful. I also think as a party it gives us more credibility when we talk about transition on the national stage as well. Um, so I think from that perspective it's it's been really great. Um, we've slowly had some impact here in Gladstone. But because our temporary office has been in Brisbane, I've been travelling away so much mm. and we haven't had 
a space for people to coalesce around and come and find us. So I think it's going to be really exciting um, to see what we can do with that in a couple of weeks when we move in. I guess that's, and the reason it's taken so long is because, yeah, I, I guess it's different for senators. Like as a as a lower house MP, there's kind of an office in the electorate that you move into when you win the seat, whereas as a senator yeah. you choose anywhere in the state. Um, so you had to actually find a whole new office. Um, but, yeah, I think yeah. it would be really cool to actually, I, I am looking forward to seeing, you know, the actual Greens Senator Penny Orman Payne um, office. in. Well, my dad Boston. says it won't be real. I'm not a real Real elected Not real until, until, you're in the a, until my face is on a window. <laughs> okay, all right. That's building, an interesting. So. Take. That's a uh, you know sad to know that your last whatever like year plus of your life hasn't been real. But you know, okay. Yep. <laughs> I think what I realised though when I walked into the office yesterday, um, it it really made me realise that for the last twelve months I've very much felt like a parliamentarian, um, mm. and I feel very comfortable in the parliamentarian space. But I've yeah. super really missing that contact with the electorate in mm. ways that you can do. And and one of our goals, I guess, in setting up the Senate office too was to really treat it like almost like a lower house MP's yeah. office as well. You know, it yeah. is a place that people that can work. come um, to get help from us. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to us really regularly being able to interface with the community. I think that's going to be fun. People who need public housing, particularly with with homes corralled for women and children escaping domestic violence, for veterans at risk of homelessness, for Indigenous Australians who need remote housing fixed up. And the Greens political party say if we vote for that legislation, we'll have less to protest about. This is some Maoist dictum of forcing people into impoverishment so that somehow they will rebel, not in revolution, but just in voting patterns. So last weekend, you were not in Gladstone, you were in Brisbane, right? Did you go to the rally outside the Labor National Conference? I, I did, but you wouldn't yeah. know I was there because I had a really big hat on and I had to wear oh, a surgical like... <laughs> mask. I can't wear sunscreen. <laughs> Looks like you're undercover or something. <laughs> yeah, I went incognito. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was the mood like at, at the rally? I think it was really great. Um, I think people were really fired up. Um, it's really clear that so many people are disillusioned with what Labor's proposing and just feel like they don't care. Um, so it was great to hear from. We heard from someone, I think, from the student union out at the uni, we heard mm-hmm. from, um, is it Secure? S-E-Q-U-R, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. representative from there. Renters, yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really clear that renters are starting to mobilise and Labor should be worried. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think they yeah. are. Like, 
yeah, you can you can certainly tell that from from the way that they're responding. I mean, the whole the whole labor conference is such a strange thing, isn't it? I feel like there was a lot of chat leading up to it, and then it kind of happens, and we all realize or remember that nothing actually happens at the conference and it's all just kind of political theater and all the real decisions are just made behind closed doors and really I mean a large part of what it seems to be is just an excuse for labor to to get together and hold big quote-unquote you know uh just business forums or or fundraising dinners where a table costs you ten thousand dollars I don't know if you saw this bit I did and and I guess the other thing that really struck me at the rally too which I think really made it even clearer that you have to pay for access mm. was there were big um, barriers around the convention centre. Can you imagine so, that at a Greens conference? Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. so you rock up to the convention centre, your elected reps are in there talking about policies mm. that are going to impact you and the message that you're sending, they're sending, is do not pass. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you want to pass, you've got to pay us $10,000. Yes. And I just think it was, it just like hit you in the face yeah. that, that they weren't really representing everyone. And I, yeah. yeah, I was blown away. I have to admit, I was shocked when I got there and saw the fences, mm-hmm. but clearly that's a thing. Apparently, this was from the, the Australian's um, Queensland politics gossip column, Feeding the Chooks, which is a very kind of insidery, you know, the column itself, uh, this was the column actually that ran that story about me and my band. But moving on from that, they had a, a bit about this. They said, speaking on the ABC's 7.30 program on Thursday night after the first day of the Labor love-in, the PM claimed the difference between us and the Liberal Party is they hold conferences and no one focuses on anything they're talking about because they're essentially just fundraisers. It goes on, the distinction might be lost on the corporate donors and lobbyists throwing cash around to get access to the assembled Labor leaders and MPs now sitting on the Treasury benches in Canberra and across mainland Australia. As revealed by Chooks, Albanese and local lad treasurer Jim Chalmers with a double bill for a $10,000 a head cosy dinner for donors held on Tuesday night after both arrived in Brisbane to prepare for the conference and the housing debate at National Cabinet the next day. Like, I, I mean, it's surely just silly to get on national television and be like, the Liberal Party just holds conferences that are just big fundraisers while you're like almost simultaneously holding a $10,000 a head uh, fundraising dinner. But okay, sure. Labor seems to be really good at kicking own goals. Yes, <laughs> just, I know. Like the number of times where you sit there in the chamber and you go, I don't think the argument that you're making out is actually the one that no. you think you are. No, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, but do you think I I honestly didn't see much coverage of any sort of outcomes from the conference and it kind of seems because to be because there weren't really any significant ones. Like the things that they were talking about in the lead up there was, you know, a push against AUKUS. I think what they ended up with was this, quote, assurance that Australia won't possess or seek to acquire nuclear weapons or build a nuclear power plant. Um, things like increasing foreign aid funding, something about uh, they've said that they would initiate a parliamentary inquiry into immigration detention um, as if they need, you know, an inquiry to figure out that their own policy is fucking inhumane and should be scrapped. Um, Sadly, the super profits tax was just watered down beyond recognition. You know, the CFMEU, CFMEU pushed for this super profits tax on corporations to fund public and affordable housing and what they ended up with was this motion to quote increase government investing in social and affordable housing with funding from a progressive and sustainable tax system 
which is like so just what they would say that they're already doing probably i'm much too fast to take that test change from within yeah i guess we have to wonder does labor's left still exist and what state is it in um, or has it been completely subsumed by Anthony Albanese? Change from within. But what have I told you that you could end native forest logging once and for all by voting Greens? <laughs> no, it's actually what the Greens should have been originally, which is an internal lobby group within the Labor Party called Lean. So how can we make it happen? Well, starting today, the National Conference of the ALP is happening. This is a once-in-a-term thing. It's basically where all the branches of the Labor Party get together and decide what their national policy platform is going to be. Lean is going to be there with a comprehensive campaign pushing hard for an end to native forest logging in Australia. They have a very strong track record of shifting environmental policy in this country, but even if they don't get the native forestry ban up this time, they are close. I'll tell you what will help them out is... If you guys go join your local AOP branch, because most of these local meetings have like 15 people attending. So if there was even five or six more in support of this, that's what forms party platform. Just a bunch of Lions Clubs ladies saying, oh. So what I'm saying is when you're sitting around saying, why isn't X getting done? That's how you get X done. Change from within. So did you talk to the delegates afterwards? What were they saying about how they felt it went? I guess, are you disappointed the left wasn't able to get more considering you had a majority? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask Okay. <laughs> Change from within. Instead of ending indexation for student debt, they have this vague commitment to work to ensure that studying at university does not shackle young workers with a lifetime of debt. A lot of room for interpretation in there. No ban on native forest logging. Um, I mean, but the one thing that I wanted to get into with you is did they make any kind of, you know, was there anything on the agenda at Labor's National Conference around schools funding? Because this is something that you have been looking at, of course. Um, they actually took out a whole bunch of references um, in their draft platform that referenced equity in education and that was flagged before the conference that their draft proposed platform has actually Just removed explicit um, references to equity. Um, they also, I think, removed their commitment around secular education. Really? Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure they took out the word secular. Um, but in terms of funding, they just repeat the same stuff that they've been repeating ad nauseum, which is that they're on a pathway. <laughs> they're on a pathway to full funding for schools. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> starting to look like a road to nowhere. Um, I was at a teacher activist network um, event a couple of months ago and they sort of said, you know, not only that, but it's a road full of potholes and it's probably gravel mm. too. So, yeah. <laughs> if it's, it's a public it's the road, commitment you know, there's, make when there's you're a, not a private a commitment. road alongside it that's beautifully paved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the one that goes to the private schools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, can you explain, I guess, briefly how school funding in this country works and why it is that private schools not only like are, are handsomely funded, but even get public funding while public and, and state schools are so drastically underfunded. 
Yeah, look, I'll try and do it in a way that yeah. everyone's eyes don't glaze over because <laughs> you it, can. it's sort of a bit technical and I think a lot of people don't really understand how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Howard decided that he was going to give everybody choice and the way that they would give people choice was for um, the federal government to start putting money, significant amounts of money, into private schools and their reasoning for giving federal money to private schools was that states are largely and have been responsible for a long time for public education, for school education. So John Howard said, well, if we give money to the private schools, then parents will have choice because, you know, both sorts of schools will be able to exist and and parents can decide where they want their kids to go. Um, Then Julie Gillard came in. Well, no, that's not not true. Labor came into government Mm -hmm. and... What had happened over time with John Howard's approach was that instead of everybody getting the choice to go to a good school, Mm. less and less money was going to public schools and more money was going to private schools and people were starting to choose private schools more and we were starting to see this equity gap start. And so Labor said, let's get David Gonski to review how we fund education and do it in a way that's better. And so they came out and said... We need to fund according to need. So we have private schools that are awash with cash that are getting mm. government money and then we've got public schools that are under-resourced and what we need to do is have a sector-blind model where we just go what what is actually necessary for a kid to get the minimum education. And I think okay. that's the thing that's missing in this whole yeah. debate is that we're actually talking ideal, about yeah, the minimum. schooling resource standard is the minimum amount required to give, I think it's something like 75% of kids get them over the line on yeah, a math plan okay. test. So yeah, it doesn't okay. even cover everybody, right? It doesn't even cover the, the most needy kids. Mm. And then there's some loadings on the top. So you'll hear a lot this thing about funding schools to 100% of the yeah. SRS and that means okay. giving them 100% of the bare minimum. And what ended up happening was after Gonski handed down his report, the Catholic education sector and the independent sector started jumping up and down saying, you can't take any money away from us. Mm. And Julia Gillard came out virtually five minutes after that report was released and said, no school will be worse off. Okay. And so what it's done is it's baked in extra funding for private schools and public schools have been left behind. So I could, I'm, you know, there's different proportions of money that come from the feds in the states. The way it works is that generally the feds give most of the money to private schools and a little bit to public schools. State governments give most of their money to public schools and not a right. lot, not as much to the privates. But where we've ended up is public schools around the country, only 98 or 98% of them do not get the minimum amount of funding required wow, okay. and haven't for a decade. Yeah. And yet nearly every private school is overfunded. Over, yeah, so over overfunded. 100%. Yeah. 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 And at the yeah. moment there's no time frame within which public schools are going to get 100% of their money. In a decade mm. they'll only be at 95%. Mm. If I give you an example of what that actually looks like in practice. Yeah. So I used to teach at the biggest high school here in Gladstone until I got elected, there's a Catholic high school up the road. The kids at the Catholic high school get more government money from all levels of government per student than my school did 
down the road. More government money. So more government money. Not even and just money before, overall. Yeah. No, more government money. So before they even put fees on top of that, they are getting more money per student than my school was. And the kicker in it all is that 85% of kids with the most need yeah. in this country who have the most educational disadvantage are being taught in public schools. Mm-hmm. So the place where we need the money the most is missing out and the place where we need it the least is overfunded and that mm-hmm. is a broken model. Absolutely. And I think like there's kind of a couple of, of sides to this, right, because there is that ideological, you know, belief that uh, education should be properly funded, that it should, you know, public education should be fully funded, that every kid deserves access to a quality education and the resources they need. And there's also in the current climate, there's flow on cost of living impacts from this because there is that thing where, yeah, more parents feel like they have to send their kids to a, a private school if they want their kid to have a quality education. And I think a lot of parents will really stretch you know, over leverage themselves in order to do that. And then there's the fact that a lot of public schools will basically outsource their costs to parents via fees, via, you know, quote unquote, voluntary contributions. And so then there are all of these out-of-pocket costs that parents have to saddle on top of everything else, whether it's, you know, excursions or or school bags, uniforms, other resources like that. Um, that just make it harder and hard, like just, yeah, entrench existing inequality and particularly a yeah, generational disadvantage in a way. Oh, look, the inequality gap has never been wider and it's getting worse and worse. And and I think Amy uh, McMahon, from mm. MP from South Brisbane, MP from South Brisbane, did a survey around out-of-pocket costs for education. And when we analysed the data, the amount of money that particularly parents of kids in secondary school are forking mm-hmm. out in out-of-pocket fees is virtually identical to the amount that the schools are being underfunded per student. So it's so it's parents and carers right. who are trying yeah. to make up Just picking that up the gap. tab. Yeah, but that's also assuming too that all of the parents in that public school actually have the capacity to pay those fees. Mm. Because as a teacher, I've I've worked in schools where large numbers of kids aren't able to pay the fees. Mm-hmm. And then you're being asked to either withhold resources from them or they have these really horrible things where, you know, they'll say you can't go to the, the prom or the formal at the end of the it's year fucked. if you haven't paid all your fees, you know. And it's it's a really – it is a, it's a fuck system yeah. where kids are really being disadvantaged by the fact that their government isn't properly funding their education. Yeah. And you're right, parents – many parents feel like they don't have – a choice because yeah. they look at the public school and it doesn't have enough resources. The buildings are getting old and falling down. I mean, private schools also had access to this multi-million dollar fund at the federal level that could buy them new buildings, you know, mm-hmm. and and public schools don't have access to that money either. Yeah. Um, I was talking to one person um, who is good friends with a principal at a private school and they just came straight out and said that they – they fund the operating costs of their private school totally from government money um, wow. and all the money they take in fees, they just put in the bank and they invest and then they use <gasps> it to build brand spanking new orchestra pits and rowing sheds and oh, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's you're really often, broken. 
I will say your office has has produced these stickers Ooh. that I bloody love that I, I think say something like how many fucking orchestra pits does one private school need, you know, fully fund state schools. Um, I don't know. Is there a way that people can get those stickers? Somehow? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if, if, if in the show notes you put our yeah. Senate office email address, happy okay, for people to email that. us with their details and we will send them some. Yeah, okay, we will do that. And so, yes, yeah, so you've produced those stickers as obviously running a campaign around fully funding state schools. What exactly are the Greens calling for? So there's this thing called the National School Reform Agreement mm-hmm. and that's the agreement that the federal government signs with all the states to fund education. And that was due to be renegotiated this year to kick in next year and Labor did what Labor does. They called a review and they said, let's not do that for another 12 months and we'll just have reviews into everything to tell us what we already know, which is that public schools are underfunded. Um, So that that agreement is to be negotiated at the start of next year for the following year. The Greens are calling for federal and state governments to come together to fund public schools to 100% of their schooling resource standard at the start of the agreement. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the important part because we've had a decade of kids missing out. The way the government's talking at the moment, if there's any chance that they're going to get to 100%, they're talking about this pathway and there's a suggestion that maybe Mm -hmm. the pathway might be at the end of the next agreement. The end of that next agreement is until 2029. So if you're a kid in year one, you'll be finished primary school before is full funding of your school and if you're to a the kid minimum, in said, again. Yeah, to the minimum. Yeah, that's right. Not even to, to, to worry about those kids who are really struggling. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you're a kid in high school starting, starting, you know, next year, you won't see full funding until you, you know, you won't see full funding in, in the whole time you've ever been at school. So they need to bring that forward. It's really urgent. Um, and they're all jumping up and down and, you know, wringing their hands over the latest NAPLAN results. Well, guess what? If you don't fund public education results go down and it's not fucking Mm. rocket science and they just need to get on and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, I think we'll put a link, I think for this week's call to action, we'll put a link in the show notes to join the campaign and sign up for updates about fully funding state schools. And I think we'll also, if people are interested, they can come along to your like online forum that you're holding this Thursday, I believe. What what kind of things, like what will be discussed and, and nutted out at that forum? Well, I guess one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to explain to people how school funding works and and why it's so inequitable because the number of people who you talk to, like when I use that example of my my high school getting less money, people are shocked because most people don't (laughs) actually realise, you know, how inequitable the system is. So we'll be talking to them about about that and helping people to understand why it's so broken. Um, and then we'll be talking to them about how they can get involved in our campaign because it's really clear that unless we put significant pressure on the government um, to bring forward that 100% for public schools, it's not going to happen. Mm. I think we've put really good pressure on them in the last 12 months. There isn't a sitting week that goes by where I don't get up in the parliament and start banging on about how inequitable it is. Do you reckon they're sick of it yet? <laughs> uh they don't like it. <laughs> they certainly don't be, like it. You know, it. this is the party of, of education, of, of social services, welfare and everything like oh, look, that. Well, Jason Clegg grew up in the, 
Jason Clare grew up in the western suburbs, so he knows all about disadvantage according to him, but not not sufficiently well, enough, enough to actually to want to do something about it in a hurry. A bit like Alba and houses, you know? Yeah, yeah. Know what it's like, but don't actually want to act mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. To make a real difference. Yeah. And do you have support? Like, do, where do the kind of the education and the, and the teachers' unions come into this campaign? Are they also pushing for, for something similar? Look, the unions are pushing to get to 100% of the SRS in the next agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there's an element of being beaten down over time. Yeah. You know, like they are right when they say that this is the uh, this is the last chance for public education. You know, if we go another funding agreement and we don't get 100%, we're going to see that flight. You know, we're going to see really mm-hmm. there's a point, mm-hmm. you know, where everything starts to run really fast, where people just flee one, one system for another yeah. because it's so degraded and you are absolutely left with only the people who are really struggling in that public sector and we also know that we've got this confluence at the moment of teachers leaving the profession in droves because when you're under-resourced mm. and overworked and you're not paid enough you don't want to stay and that's mm. understandable so so I think you know there's an element of the unions just wanting to get the funding yeah. in the next term and I there's you know, the Teachers Union in Queensland and, and all around the country are unaffiliated unions, so they're not bound to Labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, and they're very supportive of our campaign, but I think my role is to shift the Overton window yeah. for what what we need so that we get a good outcome and, and to create space then for the union to push harder um, because I guess there's that element that they always feel like they need to keep Labor on side to a certain extent so that they can stay at the table and have input. But I don't have to do that and I'm not going to yeah. do that. Yeah, and I'm going to yeah. keep keep telling it like it is um, and hopefully, as I said, really shift the expectations so that we get a good deal for young kids because, yeah, they can't afford to miss out any longer. Yeah, exactly. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. So another thing that Labor's National Conference apparently resolved uh, last weekend was to consider a national charter of human rights. I didn't see a whole lot of reporting on this, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, Australia apparently is the the only democratic country in the world that still doesn't have any form of federal human rights laws, any form of federal human rights charter. There are a couple of uh, states and territories that do have human rights charters. So the ACT has had one since 2004, Victoria, I believe, since 2008. And Queensland has had one since far more recently, but 2019. Do you remember this, the introduction of that act in Queensland as a Queenslander and kind of the reaction to, oh, Queensland is getting a human rights act. I do actually because I was Mm. teaching legal studies at the time and virtually every year in year 12, one of the assignments that the kids do is, you know, should Australia have a charter of human rights? So um, I was I was very cognizant of that because we also had to change our assessment because you can't write a question (laughs) about should Queensland have a human rights act if you've already got one. Interesting. Um, so, yes, yeah. I do remember that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think it felt like a pretty big moment for a lot of people. It felt historic. Yeah. But I, I think in the following years there have been questions about whether it is doing what it is intended to do and particularly we saw that on display this week. I actually, and I think as well, we may have spoken a little bit about this on the show before if 
people are interested, if you are a Patreon subscriber, the episode from the National Conference in December last year with Michael Berkman talks a little bit about the act and particularly I think it was in the context of, you know, climate protest and that sort of thing. Um, But, yeah, how it's useful and where it falls short in some places. But when I was looking at the the history of when this, this act was introduced, actually at the time that the government introduced the bill, there were experts who were saying they had real concerns, particularly about how it treated young people in contact with the criminal legal system. So it specifically, they they were really worried about the fact that it would allow children who'd been convicted of an offence to be held alongside adult prisoners. Um, you know, Amnesty International at the time called this a gross violation of international law. Uh, because yeah, like it just makes sense that children, you know, shouldn't be held alongside adults um, when they're in detention in custody. They it, it does say like the the human rights bill as it did end up passing in in Queensland has this prohibition on keeping children who are on remand, so children who have been charged or who, who have been picked up and held in custody before they make it to trial, before they've been sentenced, that they must be held separately from detained adults and the most relevant place where this would come up is when children are held in adult police watch houses in Queensland do you my my second do you remember Queensland politics question is about the kids in watch houses scandal in 2019 the watch house files the four corner story yeah do you remember that oh absolutely it was you know it was all over the media the next day and if I remember correctly the prime minister at the time came out and announced a royal commission off the back of it because it was mm. it was so egregious and so so shameful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean this is and, and I think for it all was, the good it did, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Here we, are, here we still are. It was around the time that I think people really had that image of Dylan Volar. Um, yes, with you know, the spit hood over territory, his head in the with chair. the spit hood. Yeah, and then it it came out that Queensland had been holding children in adult police watch houses for extended periods of time. So, you know, there's there's kind of a provision where, yes, if a child gets gets charged with an offence, they'll get taken to the watch house to be processed, yep. but the Youth Justice Act would require that they then be moved to a youth detention centre, which is, while it's still a fucking yep. prison and I don't think they should be there, we don't think they should be there, but theoretically it's it's specifically designed for children and to have the yep. services that are um, more yep. appropriate for children and to be held separately from adults. And this, I think, yeah, like it's worth reminding people what we're actually talking about when we say children shouldn't be held in watch houses because think you need to really think about what that looks like, a child being held in a cell next to, you know, it, sometimes it's been in line of sight of of other adults. There have been stories right. of adult prisoners exposing their genitals to children, imitating sexual acts to children of the opposite sex. Um, even when they're just in a cell next to an adult, they're, uh, the walls are so thin that they can hear clearly what's happening in the, in the cell next to them. Um, there are stories of children listening to an adult being tasered in the cell next to them. Um, they are in cells that are designed for two people but packed in four into a cell so children are sleeping on the floor, not even on a bench. Yeah. They have no partition toilet. There's just a toilet in the room that they have to go in front of all these other people. The toilet's also in full view of CCTV. Uh, they have nowhere to change, no change of clothes, a lot of the time no access to things like sanitary pads for young girls. 
um, no access to education, a basic right in the Human Rights Act, as we'll come back to, no access to proper services, to the services that they need. A lot of the time, these are children with cognitive impairments, might be disabled yep. children, um, really traumatized children a lot of the time, often victims of crime themselves. And yeah, they're in watch houses that are effectively, as the Human Rights Commissioner has put it, a concrete box, no natural light, uh, just really no place for a child and really a place that you can imagine a child spends time in there, they do not come out the same. And no. there's no way that they're coming out less likely to then reoffend. In fact, they're coming out probably more likely. I, I guess, yeah, and I mean, I think you have a particular perspective on this maybe as, as a teacher who has worked with kids. I don't know if you, in your time as a teacher, um, you know, taught or worked with kids who had had contact with the youth justice system or even just are able to speak to that idea of, kids that you might have taught being held in a place like this? Well, I think one of the things that we need to remind ourselves is we're talking about kids as young as 10. Yes, you know, yes. So we're talking about little prim- you know, primary school kids um, being put in those situations. But but even if they're not, even if they're kids you know, who are in secondary settings, mm. one of the things that we're seeing increasingly in education is high numbers of kids who've experienced trauma. And that impacts their education profoundly. You know, the kids who are some of the most disadvantaged kids in our schools are kids with trauma backgrounds. And and so the idea, I mean, I have to admit, I just, I can't even conceive of how anyone could think that putting young people in that situation is okay. Mm. Um, I think the, the Australian child commissioner this morning was on RM Breakfast and she made the observation and it's absolutely right that the two states that are having the biggest problems supposedly with youth crime are the states that have the worst records for looking after and caring for young people who enter the justice system. So it's not working and we need governments that have the courage to actually talk about what works. Instead of pandering continuously, you know, to this tough on crime or call to be tough on crime. Mm I had a conversation with a woman in Cairns when I was up there recently and she was talking about crime as an issue. And I actually said to her, well, do you think actually putting kids with other criminals is a good thing? Like, wouldn't it be better if we provided supports, if we had support for families, you know, all those things that you need. Mm. And she said, actually, yeah, that'd be better. She said, I just want everyone to be safer. Yeah, yeah. And this is the this is the deep, deep irony of this stuff around, you know, quote unquote youth crime and even just kind of, you know, the criminal legal system and that political discourse generally. The catch-22 is that governments crack down, quote unquote, crack down mm. on youth crime. They introduce tougher laws and you can look at the data and see those laws being introduced and offending going up and, mm. and often the seriousness of offending increasing because we know it just makes things worse. But instead of looking at that and going, oh, clearly we fucked up, let's take a different mm. track, they just double down and double down. And in Queensland, we've just seen this so clearly in the last few years. I mean, in 2019, when the Watch House files came out, when there was this scandal about kids being held in watch houses, the response from the government at that time, not really that long ago in the scheme of things, a few years ago, was, oh, yeah, we've really fucked up here. We are getting all the kids out of the watch house. They yeah. should not be held there. And yet 
few years later, things are just as bad. Probably things are worse than they were then because they've made a series of changes in response to these scare campaigns wow. from the LNP who see this as a weakness, see this as a vulnerability for, Queen, um, for Queensland Labor, particularly in the regional seats, and are agitating for tougher and tougher laws. In 2021, um, the, the government introduced a series of changes to the Youth Justice Act that probably most significantly for for what we're talking about here, reversed the presumption for bail, which means that it's assumed automatically that children as young as 10 uh, who who commit certain types of offences, things that can be as as little as just stealing something, uh, it's presumed they won't be offered bail. That is that they will be held in the watch house. In and then just this year, and, and you know, we saw more more kids wow. locked up for longer as a result of that. And then at the start of this year, the government introduced new laws that create a breach of bail offence for children, meaning that if they breach a technical condition of their bail, something like, you know, reporting somewhere or staying at a particular location, maybe that location isn't safe to stay, by the way, but they can be sent back to the watch house. And because because that is such a fucked up reform and it is inconsistent with the Human Rights Act that Queensland introduced, they had to just suspend the act in order to do that. Mm. They they explicitly had to say when introducing that legislation, yes, we acknowledge this is inconsistent with our obligations under the Human Rights Act, but we want to do it. We think that it's, you know, urgent enough um, <laughs> that, that we can override this. And, and there was expert advice, you know, from the Human Rights Commission that that, that doesn't actually achieve the, the end. You're saying that the urgent need is to protect community safety, but this will not protect community safety. Mm-hmm. So it just, does not justify overriding the Human Rights Act. But they went and did it anyway. And what we've seen is more children locked up for longer periods of time. As a result, youth prisons are so overcrowded that they're now saying that they need to build two new youth prisons because while those youth prisons are overcrowded, where do the kids get held? In the watch house. In the watch houses. Yeah. So, I I mean, Queensland, we know that we lock up the most children in, in the country and something that I think a lot of the time is forgotten in this conversation is that 90% of the kids, even in detention centres, are unsentenced. They have not faced trial yet. They're not, you know, when we hear... The LNP and even Labor now referring to these children as criminals, they actually haven't been charged and convicted yet. They're literally just being held in this situation. Um, and the government brags about it. You know, they say, yes, we've got the toughest laws in the country. We're holding more children in custody for longer. Um, and we're going to build new prisons. I mean, not to mention just obviously the fact that the majority, vast majority of the children who are in youth prisons and even higher proportion in police watch houses, around 80%, are First Nations. First Nations. Yeah, I know. It's disgusting. And I just think the idea that you would be prepared to essentially sacrifice the lives of young kids to, to gain or to hold on to political power is just so abhorrent. Yeah. But that's exactly what they're doing. And and they've got form, right? It's exactly mm-hmm. the same approach they took to refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, they are prepared to sacrifice people on the altar of maintaining power. Yeah. Yeah, and so true. rather than have the courage to get the evidence and take the evidence and explain to people why something's not working, and do the things that they need to do. And here's the other thing. 
they have fixed four-year terms now. Four mm. years is a long time to fix something up yeah. and then be able to go to the public, you know, at the end of that four yeah. years and, and show, say, yeah. here's the good thing that we did and this is why it's working. Mm-hmm. You know, fuck, if you can't be brave when you've got four years to do it, when are they ever? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's... When are they ever going to be brave? And it's so labour, you yeah. know, identify a problem, make it look like you're doing something. So introduce the Human Rights Act so you can say, mm-hmm. yeah, now we care. We yeah. Yeah. And then either suspend it or half-arse it. Yeah, yeah, You know, exactly. and in this case, they're not half-arsing it. No. They're just, they're just making out that, you know, there's, that an adult, you know, has had their car stolen is, mm. is more important than a kid's life that they're just going to completely ruin. And that's what they will do. You know, yeah. those kids' lives are ruined the minute they walk into that watch house because, as you said, they'll be traumatised and there are no services to deal with that on the other side. Yeah, And then yeah. the community pays for it again. Mm. And the so government, it's a, you know, it's a false economy. It's cruel and it's a false economy. It is, yeah. And Queensland Labor obviously has faced enormous amounts of pressure from experts, from advocacy groups, yeah. First Nations groups who say what you're doing is fucked up and it's making the situation worse. And they say, you know, oh, we're, we've introduced a package, we're funding services, but, you know, 80% or more of that package is actually just funding more cops. And, and yes, that's like their solution. Yes, like the announcements they made this week about mm-hmm. additional money for PCYCs and I thought the goal it's just more cops. That's you know, not, yeah, that's not actually yeah. community-led solution. That's not evidence-based solutions. Um, but these groups, so we're getting to, you know, what happened this week. The precursor to this is that this group up in Cairns, Yeti, Youth Empowered Towards Independence, I think it is, um, who works with young kids, they brought a case to the Supreme Court arguing that holding these kids in watch houses beyond that, you know, initial charge is unlawful, effectively. The strange thing that happened with this case was it kind of had an unexpected turn because in the course of arguing that, they realised that, oopsie, all these children that we had been holding in watch houses didn't even have a valid order to be held there at all. So they had to be urgently transferred out and they didn't even kind of get to rule on or consider the substantial question of whether it's legal to hold a child in a watch house at all under the Youth Justice Act. Um, But you know, clearly that that wasn't the end of it. The government has gone, oh, fuck, there's a bit of a we're at risk here. They sought legal advice and as as it turns out, you know, they they got legal advice, as we understand it, that probably the practice overall was unlawful, that they were yep. incorrectly interpreting the act. And so we come to this week. So Wednesday afternoon, 3.30 p.m., The police minister stands up in parliament to reopen debate, so start the second reading debate on this this random on this bill. The bill is called Child Protection, Offender Reporting and Offender Prohibition Order and Other Legislation Amendment Bill. It's a completely like very innocuous bill. It's meant to be about reportable sex, uh, child sex offenders and like how their devices can be inspected and police yes. powers around that, et cetera, completely unrelated. It was introduced last year. It's gone through the committee process in Queensland, which is what we have because we don't have an upper house. No. Um, and now it's coming back for debate. But the minister stands up and starts introducing amendments. He, he introduces these amendments around decriminalising public drunkenness and begging, which 
I mean, that's that's great. We've been calling for that. Yep. Uh, it's He fixes up. The, there was this administrative fuck up around police disciplinary matters. There's something about a coal mine near Mackay and relocating a workers' accommodation camp. There's ending police that entrapment. Sounds re- that sounds related. <laughs> yeah, right? Then it is unanimous. We are going to approve the bill to evacuate the town of Springfield in the great state of... Wait a second. I want to tack on a rider to that bill. $30 million of taxpayer money to support the perverted arts. All in favor of the amended Springfield slash pervert bill? Uh. Bill defeated. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. There's something about police entrapment of sex workers. The list just goes on and on and on. They're moving all of these amendments that actually the amendments were so broad-ranging and substantial that they're moving at the last minute with no notice to this bill that the amendments are longer than the bill. 57 pages of amendments. The bill was something like 40-something pages. And included in those amendments, they are suspending the Human Rights Act as it relates to children held in watch houses. Keeping in mind that the way the Queensland Parliament works, they'd already earlier in the week agreed to limits on debate for this this bill that was meant to be yep. about reportable offenders, right? And they allow, you know, a few hours of speeches over that afternoon and the following day. And then 45 minutes, including the minister's reply, who can basically speak as, you know, I think even up yep. to like 40 minutes on, on the bill for consideration in detail, where you actually go through the bill clause by clause, clause yep. by clause. Um, they, they didn't even table these amendments until that time, until 45 minutes before the end of the parliamentary sitting week. Journalists didn't have a copy of the amendment. No one did. The public didn't have access to this. And I, I think it was almost like there was the kind of a feeling of, is this even legal? Like how in a supposedly democratic country can the government just be like, oh, yeah, we're doing this, by the way. We're doing all these things at the 11th hour. It almost feels impossible. Well, I guess that's the problem, isn't it, when you don't have an upper house yeah. in your parliament that can review and put a break on and potentially send something off to inquiry. Um, yeah. So we're not going to get an, up, an upper house in Queensland anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it was interesting at the Olympics inquiry, um, Jared Blaise, um, and Fiona Simpson came in the afternoon to okay. in the public session, but he spent a lot of time railing. For, against I'll just say for anyone who doesn't know, Jad Blair is a LNP state ah, member. Yes, um, with who very, was the attorney very general? Wasn't he? Hair, if anyone's interested, was wasn't he? Maybe he? He, yeah. I have you're a feeling right. he was even the attorney general in an yeah. LNP government, and he just sat there railing against the committee system in Queensland. <laughs> and how terrible it was and how it was stacked in favour of the government. And I thought, well, you're in government and you never changed it. Like nobody, yeah, as soon as they God, get into power, so, they're really this, happy yeah. for the status quo. But we're not going to get an upper house in Queensland anytime soon. And so mm. I think it really speaks to the only way we're actually going to get any sort of break, I think, on that kind of decision-making is to make sure that we vote in minority parliaments. Yeah, that yeah, we have exactly. to have multi-party government because if, if it doesn't have to get through another party to, to, to become law, then we're just going to remain in this situation where the government has the numbers on the floor 
yeah. of, of the chamber and there's nothing to stop them. To not only pass what they like but to pass it in whichever way they like. Like the fact that they yeah. can just go, we're only having this amount of debate, we're not even, this Real. isn't going to committee, there's no scrutiny of this, we're just going to tack it on as amendment. Oh, yeah, we know that there are rules that prevent us from introducing amendments that don't relate to the stated purpose of the bill. We can just yeah. override that though. We can vote to override mm. that because that's what we can do yeah. in Queensland Parliament. And so, well, you yeah. <laughs> Well, you see that at the federal level though, right? Like mm. that happens in the lower house all the time. And it's not until it gets to the Senate where the government yeah. doesn't have the numbers yeah. that they can't just pass motions to quash debate because they have to at least have the agreement of either the opposition or the Greens and, and, and the crossbench. So, yeah, it really speaks to, I would just say to Queenslanders at the next election, vote in more green so that we yeah. don't have Fuck. we don't have majority governments because this kind of thing is just going to continue to happen Yeah, unless we yeah. get some level of reform and that doesn't look likely while we still have. You know, Labor's never going to reform it when they're in power because it no. suits them. Yeah, Coalition gets in, all of a sudden it suits them. Mm-hmm. So until we reach a point where people are really comfortable voting in multi-party governments, I don't think anything's going to change. Yeah, and the coalition, you know, obviously got up and screamed and yelled about how it's a democratic abusive process and I can't believe they're doing this even though, and then, you know, Labor stands up and says, well, Newman also did the Vlad Vicious Laws Associate. They did it too. And it's like, yeah, you're both as fucking bad as each other. And none of you really want to discuss what we're actually talking about here, which is, again, holding children as young as 10 in police watch houses. And not only that, so... I want to go through just, yeah, in a bit more detail what these amendments actually do. They, first of all, remember that Supreme Court case, the amendments retrospectively validate all of those times that children were held in watch houses without a proper order in place. They're just like, actually, we're saying they were all valid now. You, You can't sue us for that. It then suspends the application of the Human Rights Act for two things. First of all, allowing the government to make any place a, quote, detention center. And that could include, it specifically says, watch houses or adult prisons. So enabling them to say this adult prison is now actually a detention centre so it's we're going to hold children there. Yep. It then gives the, it spends the Human Rights Act to give the minister discretion to tell police when to transfer a child into uh, from the watch house into youth detention so that they no longer have a requirement to get their out get them out of there as soon as possible it basically they can be held in the watch house indefinitely and in suspending the human rights act it's not only saying that yeah these two things are not consistent with the human rights act we know that it's actually suspending the entire application of the act for children their protections under that act when they are in one of those places of detention whether it's a a watch house or you know even an adult prison it's saying they have no right to procedural fairness and the government has no obligation to act consistently with the act when the child is in one of those facilities or being transferred in between cells. And so all of the protections in the Human Rights Act, you know, their, their rights to education, their rights to healthcare, their protection against deprivation of liberty, liberty Indigenous children's um, cultural rights, for example, they don't have access to any of that. The Human Rights Act just does not apply to them. And, I mean, the government is saying They've put in there a sunset clause. So these provisions expire theoretically on the 31st of August 2026, or they can extend them by regulation if they want to 31st of August 2027. So we'll assume they're probably going to do that. And they're saying that that's because, well, we'll have two new youth prisons that we want to build in Queensland by then. And so then we won't because we'll, we'll be filling up those prisons. And so we won't need to keep kids in the watch house anymore. But the fact remains like the path that they're going down, they keep introducing these laws that proudly results 
in them locking up more children, they are just going to keep filling prisons and and then they'll fill the watch houses until they're full and they'll build more prisons and, you know, they because they will create more victims, they'll create more, you know, children who mm-hmm. are going to get out and reoffend and reoffend more seriously and the vicious cycle is just going to fucking continue until they take a different approach. It's the sort of thing, isn't it, that if you were told that an authoritarian regime was doing this in another country, you'd be saying how disgusting it was Mm -hmm. and how they didn't care about human rights and and what a terrible regime it was and yet so much of that happens here and people either don't know Mm. or they don't realise. I mean, in some ways it's you can understand why they did it the way they did it, right? Because they didn't want to have the debate. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just so egregious and so disgusting. But the flip side of that too is that in some ways they give they give the LNP a free kick because they can rail against the fact that this process was so terrible mm-hmm. and not actually have to be held for, to account for the fact that actually if that had been debated, they yeah. probably would have agreed. Yep. That's you know right. what I mean? The LNP, that's and, right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it'd be clear for everyone that they're on a unity ticket for how they're going to deal with with y- these young people. Yeah, I think, and it's particularly galling. That's right. The way that the government did this, and they then came out the next day after, um, you know, flagging these amendments, saying that this is to allow business as usual to continue. They they repeatedly trotted out this line that this is business as usual because they're saying, well, we've been interpreting the law this way for 30 years. They they kept saying that we've been, you know, keeping kids in watch houses for <laughs> extended periods of time for 30 years, effectively admitting because they have that advice from the Solicitor General that they've probably interpreted the act wrong for 30 years, that they've been unlawfully detaining children. And their response to that is to just change the law. And not only that, but to change the law so that now they can you know, quote unquote, lawfully hold children in adult prisons, which actually is not business as usual. That's fucking unprecedented. That does not yeah. happen. And the government is saying, oh, this is just a contingency just in case, you know, something really bad, crazy happens and we need to put them in an adult prison. It's unlikely to happen though, but I don't fucking believe them the way that they're going. I think they absolutely are going to be putting children as young as 10 yeah. in adult prisons because that's the system that they've that they've set up for themselves. I mean, yeah, the LNP can say that this is, they, they can, they said it's a disgraceful ab- abuse of democratic process, but I'm sure they would do exactly the same thing. They love it. They want to see more children locked up. Meanwhile, the people who actually work with children on the ground and the people who have had experiences, whether themselves or, or their family with the youth justice system, are they, they, you know, rallied outside parliament saying that this is just going to make things worse. Um, the Youth Advocacy Centre said it was yeah. horrifying. Sisters Inside said that the community will be more harmed because children will just come out more angry, you know, change the records, said that it was outrageous and harmful. The Human Rights Commissioner, who is not, like, the Human Rights Commissioner is, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a statutory position in the government. It's not someone who often comes out and, you know, they're not partisan, they don't really attack Labor that much. But they said that this means that farm animals or boars, you know, male pigs, will have better welfare protections than children as young as 10. The Human Rights Commissioner said this is a new low in the democratic record. And I think it's worth noting he also said that despite repeated requests, you know, he that position was created when we introduced the Human Rights Act, the Commissioner, and he said despite repeated requests over the last five years 
the Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, has never met with him. That's disgusting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like that just tells you everything you need to know about yeah. their approach to the whole issue. Yeah, exactly. I think what I also find really frustrating is kind of returning to, you know, that the discourse around youth offending and, and crime and the idea, though, that when we're talking about rights, we there's a dichotomy between the rights of, of victims or the rights of the child when there actually isn't. And there, there was kind of this, this connection drawn between the fact that the day that these amendments were introduced, there was this rally outside Parliament by, you know, victims of youth crime and, and supporters kind of unclear what they were calling for. They were saying they want, you know, zero tolerance approach to youth crime. It's led by this voice for victims group that seems quite dodgy, has people who, you know, have called for corporal punishment and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it's, you know, you can't deny that there are a lot of people out there who do feel worried about this, about community safety, about their safety, um, who, who see the reports or who have had an experience and don't necessarily feel safe. But to create, it's it's just such a false dichotomy to say that yeah, you, you it's either your rights, it's either victims' rights or it's children's rights. When we know that actually they they go hand in hand, and particularly fucking galling, this Labor MP John T. Bush stood up in Parliament and and spoke about her experiences working with victims of of youth crime and some really heinous examples, and said, you know. Yeah, children don't belong in watch houses, she says, but there's a worse place you can visit a child and that's in a morgue. And it's just so fucking disingenuous, right? Like it's just awful to use those examples to pursue this. But what connection does removing a child's human rights, their protection under the Human Rights Act when they're in custody, have to do with preventing crime or supporting victims? It They're completely unconnected and yet that is the only place Labor has to go to justify these heinous laws that they're pushing through. Yep, and it also ignores the intersectionality of it all, right? Like we have a state that has the lowest funded public education behind the Northern Territory in the country. Mm. We have a state that has the longest waiting list for social housing Mm. and people needing a home. You know, like if you don't meet people's needs, and you have families in crisis and you have people, you know, kids who aren't engaged at school because they're not getting the help that they need, then what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Kids act out. They don't have somewhere to go home that's safe. Yeah. You know, all of these things intersect. And so the idea that kids are paying the price for lack of government action on the things that really matter just to me adds adds to how disgusting it really is because they are actually contributing to the drivers that are meaning that kids end mm. up in this situation in the first place. Yeah, yeah. A kid, a kid who has everything they need doesn't just wake up one day and go, oh, I'm going to go steal a car. And, you know, and if they do, honestly, it, maybe it, like kids do stupid things when, when they're a teenager, if they end up in a watch house, they'll probably end up then, yeah, going down a dark path, doing much worse things. But otherwise, they'll probably grow out of it because they're a kid and their brain isn't developed yet. And, you know, you yeah. have poor decision-making skills when when you're a kid. But, yeah, like I think that connection with cost of living is so important because honestly and maybe somewhat cynically, I don't think that, you know, this is something that changes votes. I certainly don't think it changes votes to the extent that mm. Labor thinks it does and that the LNP is banking on on the fact that it that it will. Because 
people, what people are fundamentally struggling with is, yeah, those cost of living pressures. And I don't think that they really buy any of the bullshit that, that the major parties or anyone is saying about youth crime. Similarly, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the Greens pushing back against this is is going to win votes. I think that it it kind of well, it, it shows our supporters what we stand for. It can rally supporters. And it's an important thing to do to show people who are affected by these laws that at least someone in there is fucking fighting for them and standing up for them. This is business. This is business as we have conducted it and the amendments will validate that custom and practice of 30 years. Order. Uh- Pause the clock. Pause the clock. Member for Mawa, you can leave the chamber for one hour. Order. But to call this disgraceful is an understatement. It is an absolute dog act for this government to introduce amendments like this with no prior warning. Member for Mawa, pause the clock. You've used some language that the advice I have taken is unparliamentary. I'd ask you to withdraw and refrain from using unparliamentary language. But it's a reminder that, yeah, fundamentally, it's the root causes that Labor refuses to address that we will continue fighting to address, you know, housing, education, healthcare, healthcare. access to services, community-led yep. diversionary programs, you know, social programs. Those are the things that we know that work and that will make a difference in people's lives and that we have to actually really fight for. Yep, I agree. I pray that a small gear don't stay safe and I hope that our babies get to see better days. Questioning if anything's ever going to change. Locked in the cell and the smell's real strange. Locked in my mind but my brain ain't caged. I'll never well, <laughs> thank you, Penny. Thank you for the chat. Again, I, you know, before we, we go, I wanted to plug your campaign to fully fund state schools, speaking of services that, that really make a difference. Um, we'll put the link yeah. in the show note where people can sign up to join that campaign or go along to the forum um, this Thursday and to send Penny's office uh, an email if you want a sticker about fully funding state schools. Otherwise, are there where else can people kind of, you know, follow what you're doing, Penny, follow your work and that sort of thing? We're getting a lot of media, which is really great. So if okay. you're staying tuned to the news, but um, all of our socials, so Instagram, Facebook, um, whatever that thing is called now, is it X or something? Yeah, um, we'll just say yeah. Twitter. Blue Sky. Apparently we're on all the things. So okay. yeah, just, just follow look, yeah. our socials. So Penny on yep. the pain and you'll find Penny. Um, you can also find us, of course, at Serious Danger <laughs> AU on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. And please, if you can, check us three bucks a month and become a patron and get access to, you know, the, the Taylor, the, the notorious Taylor Swift episode or other cool deep dives, book and movie reviews. We've got interviews. We've got lots of cool stuff on there. If you can't be a patron, that is fine. The next best thing you can do is to please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now and yet yeah, follow us and engage with us on the socials. Um, Another quick note, this time next week, Tom and I will both be overseas, so we won't have a regular episode Mm. for you next week, sorry, but we'll make sure that there's something in the feed for you and then we'll be back the following week. Until then, you can email us, hello at seriousdangerpod.com. Check out all the links on our website, seriousdangerpod.com. I think that's it. Bye, comrades. Thanks, Penny. See ya. Thanks for having me. Change from within.